Welcome to the Fintech One-on-One Podcast, episode number 367. This is your host, Peter Renton, chairman and co-founder of Fintech Nexus, formerly known as Lended Fintech. Today on the show, we are going to a place we haven't been before on the Fintech One-on-One Podcast. We're going to Indonesia, I am delighted to welcome both Moses Lowe and Tessa Wajaya. They are co-founders of Zendit. Now, Zendit's a super interesting company. They've been called the Stripe of Southeast Asia. They are creating the payments infrastructure for the region. They're focused on Indonesia and the Philippines right now, where they're helping businesses come online, helping businesses accept payment online. They are um, also providing funding, lending to some of these businesses, which we talk about. We talk about what the, the state of play in fintech is like in Southeast Asia today, particularly in Indonesia and the Philippines. Talk about the new product that they created, which is really brand new technology for the whole country of the Philippines, which is super interesting. Uh, We talk about Tessa's passion for women in tech and the initiative that she's launched there. We talk about their brand new funding round, uh, which was just announced on May 19th. They already were a unicorn and now they're a lot more than that. We talk about how that process was like and we talk about what's next. It was a fascinating interview. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Moses and Tessa. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us today. Okay, my pleasure. So let's get started by giving the listeners a bit of background about yourself. You're both very international people. Tessa, I'll start with you. Just give us some of the highlights of what you've done in your career today. So I'm born and bred in Indonesia. I have gone to school overseas. I spent some time in Sydney in my younger years and then also went to the United States. In terms of my professional career, I started in private equity. So I spent about six, seven years doing that. That's based in Indonesia, covering that market, as well as other parts of Southeast Asia. Okay. And Moses? I'm half Indonesian, half Malaysian, born in Singapore. Uh, Grew up in Malaysia and then Australia. Worked all around Australia with BCG. Came to the US for master's. Short stint at Amazon and then send it. Okay. Well, it's good to have both of you with an Australian connection. I I think that's fantastic. So before we get into Zendit, I'd love to kind of get sort of how you learned about startups, your exposure to maybe the the US startup scene. Where did you kind of learn how to do this? I grew up in a family of entrepreneurs. My, my grandfather, his first job was to pick up sticks from the mountains and sell it in the market wasn't a very um, luxurious occupation, but he managed to build his own business over time and, and sent nine kids overseas to study. Wow. So we always referred to that story for you can be better at life. For me, I always wanted to start my own business. I got to find that calling early on. And so it was about coming to America. And maybe one story I'll tell here about how Silicon Valley kind of changes the mindset when you grow up in Australia. Came here and one of my professors who was a VC for 30 years, sat with him for 10 minutes and was trying to explain to him my business ideas. He's a very nice guy, but this is the way I remember it. I sat down with him and I said, talking through my ideas, he stopped me five minutes into the conversation. And he said, if your idea is not worth a billion dollars, don't talk to me about it. And I just remember that so well, because initially it was a shock of, okay, you know, I haven't done a very good job here. But as I left, I realized... He expected me to walk in with billion-dollar ideas. That's why he took the meeting. 
And therefore, it was the first time someone believed I could come up with a billion dollar idea. Mm-hmm. And so I actually took that away, the flip side of that, and my mind shifted. It became, okay, I may be young, I may be inexperienced, but I should be able to come up with billion dollar ideas. So just a taste of what Silicon Valley did for us in terms of setting our minds up for startup life. Yeah, I guess for me, I was in private equity for a while. I started looking into a lot of businesses, obviously in Indonesia and Southeast Asia. I got really inspired. There's so many entrepreneurs coming out of Southeast Asia. You know, a lot of times actually by necessity, like Moses' grandfather. I remember this one story of this lady, her dad had built this plant for FMCG packaging. And the way he did it, the way he started was he picked up cardboards to recycle out of landfills. And he grew that business to amazing size. So when I saw a lot of that, I was inspired really to do that myself. Around the time where I was investing, the tech scene really started to liven up in Indonesia. And that was when I thought, hey, you know what? I want to do something cool. I want to start a business. But I'm like, what is this new thing that's tech? I think tech is going to change the world. And that was when we both met. And we both hopefully are changing the world one payments at a time. <laughs> okay, so tell us the founding story then of Zended. I mean, I'd love to kind of get how you came together and you know, what you're trying to achieve. A lot of us met at Berkeley amongst the founding team. And we started by doing hackathons and we were fortunate to win a Bitcoin hackathon, Berkeley versus Stanford. <laughs> uh, out of that, then we got into YC uh, with a remittance idea. We pivoted. Uh, we pivoted from... This Bitcoin remittance, the first time Bitcoin was cool, to then a Venmo business, and then now what we do, which is more like Stripe for Southeast Asia. So that's a little bit of the, the journey. Yeah. And then Moses and I, I guess, met a little bit after he came to Indonesia. Again, I was looking at a lot of different companies. I was also dabbling and starting my own business with a friend, a really small one, just selling batik clothes online on Instagram. At that time, it was extremely painful to accept payments. And I was like, you know what? This is crazy. You know, we're going to be creating the world of tomorrow. We want to go digital, but we can't even do basic stuff like getting our customers to pay us money when we have a product for them. We met through a friend. I guess it was what work love at first sight. (laughs) (laughs) Met at a Starbucks. I'm like, who is this, this guy who's like really serious about payments? And I was like, yeah, I'm really bought in on the mission. Let's get together. Let's build something cool. And then, yeah, the rest is startup history. Okay, that's great. So, I mean, Moses, you weren't from Indonesia. I mean, Tessa, obviously, I get the sort of connection there, but why Indonesia for you? Yeah, there's two parts. I think there's a macro and a micro. I'll start with the micro. I am half Indonesian. I have family all throughout Indo. So it was about going home to Southeast Asia and building something. Right. And then selfishly, I also love the food in the region. So I just want to be able to eat it all the time. So that's a bit of the micro. The macro is kind of the obvious stuff. I guess uh, you've got 650 million people, fourth largest country on earth. You've got 120% phone penetration. You've got 50% of the population under the age of 30. So you have all these right macros for a rising tide to kind of raise all ships. And so when we came in, we said, hey, what kind of business should we build? And we thought, hmm, let's go build an infrastructure business so that the next generation of startups, the unicorns, the enterprises that want to go digital have a fundamental base to go build on top of. So tell us about the fintech space in Indonesia right now. And I presume when you started, there really wasn't much of a fintech space, but what's it like today? It's an extremely exciting and lively space. When we started out, you're right to point out, there was no one around really. The only kinds of startups that were in market were e-commerce startups. 
we really came at an amazing time when, you know, we call the likes of Moses sea turtles. I love that term from our investors. Turtles, you know, they go back home after they've been discovering out at sea. And it's fantastic because it's great for the region. So at the time, a lot of people really started to come in, homegrown entrepreneurs as well, creating all these types of fintech startup and other kinds of tech startup. And what you have today is in the fintech space is everything from payments, infrastructure like us, B2C payments, insure tech, as well as, you know, lending. It's a really exciting time to be in Southeast Asia. Right, right. So I've heard you guys described as the Stripe of Indonesia, Stripe of Southeast Asia as well, actually. So maybe you can take me through the, the product suite. What do you guys do exactly? As a startup in the fintech space, we do payment infrastructure, and that's a really big buzzword. But what does that mean? Um, what it means is we help merchants to accept payments online as well as to send payments. Now, Zen is slightly different than Stripe. Stripe operates in a market that's really focused on credit cards. I want to just remind everybody that in Southeast Asia, the concept of credit cards barely exists. The credit card penetration in Indonesia alone is only 3%. So when we're talking about payments, we're really focusing on decreasing friction, making payments easy in a space where you can't just tap your credit card or input the card payment. We also do a bunch of other stuff other than payments. For example, right now, one of our big core product is lending. We think there's a lot of room there to play because you know it's really hard for merchants to be able to get working capital loans to grow their business. And we do also a lot of back office automation stuff for merchants. So basically, our dream is Anything and everything that merchant needs to be able to come online, to be able to transact digitally and operate digitally, we're there for them. What is the payment mechanism like in Indonesia? I mean, is it like Australia where really, like a lot of people pay just with a bank account when you're paying online? Or are they debit cards? I mean, what are the payment options today? We have a few different payment options that thrive pretty well. So one is uh, depending on kind of basket size. So for us, what we see is Bank transfers is the most common payment method. A little bit similar to Australia, a bit different in how it actually works behind the scenes, but bank transfer being probably the most common. We then have cash, cash on delivery, cash over the counter, especially places like Philippines, that's really big. We also see e-wallets rising. That's probably for the smaller transaction items like a mobile phone top up or a small purchase, you'll see an e-wallet being used. But those are probably the three big payment methods. Credit cards are used for maybe when you're traveling overseas, when you're buying tickets, hotels online. But the first three is what we see most commonly. Okay. So how do you handle cash and what are you doing that is enabling that to be done online? The user flow is imagine you buy something from uh, Amazon.com equivalent. You actually say, okay, you have to pay 10 bucks for this item. You actually walk into like a 7-Eleven, a convenience store, the post office, a pharmacy, and you hand over your $10 with a little ticket with your barcode on it or your unique transaction ID number. You'll pay for that and then that'll be recorded online. So as soon as the money becomes digital, i.e. cash goes over the counter, we handle that, deal with the merchant, reconcile all these things. That's for money in. Money out, very similar. Think about someone sending home money from the US to the Philippines. The recipient can go to Western Union, post office, convenience store again, give their unique code, some ID, they get the money out. So that's how we're onboarding and offboarding cash. Interesting. It might seem a little bit mind-blowing, I know, for people who are not <laughs> in the region. Um, you're like, how can you be shopping in the likes of Amazon or Facebook, but you can't make payment? But this happens when you're you know, living in a place where I think really high phone penetration rate. A lot of people are online and they can go to Instagram, go to Facebook, social media, chat on WhatsApp. 
but a lot of them don't have access to bank accounts. And this is why we need to be able to accept payments through places like 7-Eleven or even cash on delivery, because these folks, they can browse for your goods, but they're going to be like, how do I give this money to a merchant that's like 200 kilometers away who's selling to me through Instagram? What's the reason for the low penetration of bank accounts? Is there a mistrust of banks or is it just if people just do things in cash? I mean, what is the reason there? I mean, there are a few things in play there. I'll start up. Most probably has some ideas as well or some thoughts. You know, when you're coming from a place where there are about, what, 25,000 islands in Southeast Asia? Right. Sometimes you can't even go to a local regulator and get an ID card. You know, KYC is not centralized. It's going to be really difficult for a bank to see if you're a legitimate customer or not. And another thing would be the fact that a lot of people in Indonesia are just not earning enough to be opening a bank account. If what you get is $10 a day, do you really want to go and find a bank, maybe that's 10 kilometers away that you have to walk through or to or go by motorbike and then put in this $10 when you're probably going to use up all that money in the same day? So I think there's a lot of that at play, which is why people are still majority transacting in cash. Yeah, I think when we was, when I was sitting in the US looking back home, I was like, well, I was shocked. Why do people don't use bank accounts? When we went home and started talking to people, the reality was, why do I need one? It doesn't provide me any value. I can access everything I want using cash. It's too far away. I didn't have ID systems. They cost money to maintain. So unlike maybe the US or Australia, unless you have a certain balance, it's not free. So it costs you money to have a bank account and it doesn't provide you any utility. So I just think the uh, traditional financial services haven't provided the utility that folks want from a bank account. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. So then with your payments product, can you maybe tell us like who you're working with? I imagine it's big corporations, right? But give us some sense of who are the customers for the payments infrastructure. We serve customers from global enterprises to regional tech companies to local startups. I'll give some examples on the global names like a UNICEF, a WWF, a Samsung. Regional names then like Garuda Airlines or Traveloka, kind of the biggest OTAs in market. E-commerce like Lazada, Grab ride-sharing company. And then we're also really proud of our local startups and SMEs that we serve. One of my favorite examples is uh, we helped a cake shop that sells mostly on Instagram in Jakarta mm. switch payments to us. They accept a lot of payments from overseas. So a lot of Australians actually in Japanese in their case are buying their cakes. Mm. And within a month of switching to us, because we're much better at international credit cards than anyone else in country, the revenues grew 90%. Wow. So whether you're a massive company like Chavaluka looking to accept a credit card from Lithuania or a local small business just starting out, we can make material impact on completion and conversion rates. Gotcha. Gotcha. Interesting. So then I want to go back to, you mentioned lending before. Can you sort of talk a little bit about that business? Because you're really a business to business type operation. What are you doing on the lending side specifically? When you think about it, a lot of our merchants are accepting payments through our platform. Mm -hmm. So we already have a lot of that information about merchants, about how their business is going. For a lot of these merchants, especially the smaller ones like the cake shop, they may not have enough track record to be able to go to a bank and say, hey, I need a loan to be able to grow my business. There are a lot of merchants out there who are legitimate, who should be able to get these loans, but probably traditional lenders will not be providing this for them. So what we do is we say to these merchants, all right, we have a lot of your information. We think you're an amazing business. Let us give you this capital for growth. You continue to transact through our platform and we can deduct the payments from there. So I think it makes a lot of sense for us to be providing these working capital loans to the merchants that we are already servicing. 
the macro here is that you've got a, at least in Indonesia, a nation where you've got the debt to GDP ratio one quarter, one third of a more developed country like Malaysia, which is culturally very similar. Mm-hmm. So you have a really big credit gap. So where somewhere like the US, you have this negative selection problem. People with good loans, good credit can get a loan. In our market, even if you have a great credit, you can't get a loan. When you zoom into the micro and try to understand why, she mentioned that the national ID system doesn't exist. The banks will require property as collateral. Not everyone has property. The banks will require profitability in your business. The banks will require you must exist for at least three years. You might be a venture startup backed by XL Partners or YC with $100 million in the bank, but you can't get a loan. So this is the kind of gap that we can bridge because we see the payments flows underlying. So it's much easier for us to underwrite and much safer on a risk-adjusted returns basis for us to underwrite because we see the payments flow. I have one really great story actually about lending that I'd love to share today about a lending product. So we lend to another startup in Indonesia and what they do is they have an app for truck drivers. And this is really an amazing story because what's happening is this, it's the truck drivers that need working capital while they're waiting to get paid for the services they provide through the app. So what we do is we funnel the loan through the app the app actually underwrites the loan to support the truck drivers. And in that way, we're able to really make an impact. And these guys who are, you know, just doing trips all day, need the money probably today to be able you know, to feed their children. We're able to give that to them while they're waiting for uh, payments to settle to them. It's extremely, extremely exciting. And yeah, it makes a huge difference uh, in livelihood for a lot of us in Indonesia. Yeah, I could see that's a great story. Thanks for sharing. So you started in Indonesia, but you recently expanded to the Philippines. How hard was that? Are the countries very, very different or are they similar? What, what was that process like? Uh, there's a saying in Southeast Asia, same, same, but different. So <laughs> I think similar, but quite unique. So when I think about Southeast Asia, there's probably a few layers of complexity compared to the US. So we have product sales marketing. You have to do that well. In Southeast Asia, I think we actually start with two more bits first. One is regulators. And the second is kind of business dynamics, how the country works. And then you worry about product sales marketing. So I think when we looked at the Philippines, we looked through that lens. We said, okay, Southeast Asia, regulators are really important. So we try to understand, build relationships with them and understand what do you want for the country? What's your goals? What's your desires? Then we understand business dynamics. Who are the families that run it? Who are the big conglomerates? How can we grow the pie rather than take pie from someone else? And so our history is Uh, We've built new things that don't exist because we're inventing new industries. Hmm. Third is then we said, okay, the normal sales product marketing, you have to do well. So we said, what are the problems that people face that haven't been dealt with before? And what we found was Grab, customer from before, folks that we know well said, hey, we would like direct debit, which in the US is ACH pull. Mm -hmm. And so we worked with the banks, got the okay from the regulators, worked with some big families, built direct debit, never existed before, but built this new product. And it's been our fastest growing product in the market for quite some time. Two years later, we're number one in country in terms of the payments that we do. And so it's this story of how do we actually do all these bits of complexity well. So the meta being, to go back to your question, similar in that these complexities exist, different in how you're executing each one. But coming from the region, I think we know how to execute that better than this. That's really interesting. So you basically created a brand new product, a brand new technology even, for the the country of the Philippines. That's quite amazing. So can you tell us a little bit about the scale you guys are at, maybe in Indonesia and also in the Philippines? Got any metrics you can share? We're doing about 15 billion total payments volume annually. That's kind of grown double since uh, last year. 
That's 15 billion US dollars equivalent, right? Yes. Yeah. And then we're doing about 200 million transactions, which is about triple where we were last year. Okay. Is that sort of total between the Philippines and uh, Indonesia? Yes, that's still between Indonesia and Philippines. Philippines a bit smaller, but growing faster. Indonesia a bit bigger, still growing. Right, right. So I was also reading, uh, I do my research for this podcast, that you bought a minority stake in a traditional bank recently. So tell us a little bit about what your thinking is there. When we think about the relationship between fintech and banks in the market, we're not here to sort of get rid of banks or destroy banks. As you've heard from us, a lot of transactions are still occurring from bank transfers. So it's a no-brainer for startups to work with banks and also to invest in a bank. What we want to do here is to be able to develop even more products to do with banking infrastructure, things like bank account as a service. Traditional banks may have that underlying bank account. We know other startups. We can build the right products, the right kinds of APIs for them. And that's why we've invested in a bank in Indonesia. Right, right. Because you know when you were talking about that story earlier, I was thinking about New Bank in Brazil. The banking system there was really not serving the majority of the population and they've just grown. I mean, I think their latest earnings report, I think it was like 59 million accounts they have now in a country of 200 plus million. It seems to me the opportunity is, would you agree the opportunity is similar in Southeast Asia? If you think about it, look, most banks in Indonesia don't even have a mobile app yet. That's amazing. Only yeah. the big banks have this. So can you imagine you're wanting to interact with customers who may have more than one mobile phones on their hands? But sometimes to be able to access their bank account, they have to go, okay, let me find the laptop. Let me find the nearest ATM wow. with my Google Maps, right? I'm already on my phone. So a lot of banks are having these problems where they don't understand how to serve a modern customer in the market. And this is why we're here. We can connect the bank to modern technology to be able to provide to other merchants products and services that are created for the world of today, the world of tomorrow. And I think our view is that Banking traditionally has been relationship with bank directly. Over time, I think we see we're seeing here this here in the US and in other markets is people want embedded finance. So people are throwing banking-esque products into their platforms. And that's where someone like us plays, because dear bank, you want to be part of this new world. We can help you get access into embedded finance and just have your ability to store funds wherever customers are. Yeah, it seems like that's a huge opportunity just because particularly when you say the population there's more than 100% penetration with phones. Is that smartphones as well? Like I think I imagine Android is the primary phone, right, in Indonesia? The stats we have, it's something like 70, 80%, but it's growing double digits every single year. I suspect at this point, it's vast majority of smartphones. Everyone seems to have one. And in Indonesia, there's just this interesting fact that you see where people have multiple phones. Right, right. <laughs> yes. See that in China too, when uh, you go there, a lot of people carry multiple phones. So Tessa, you, uh, I noticed that you also are really active in uh, the Women in Tech initiative. Can you tell us about what you're doing there? As a woman in fintech myself, I'm extremely passionate about supporting other women to be able to get into the space. What I'm noticing is a lot of young people are eager. A lot of young women are eager. They probably have a little bit more barrier to be able to enter the tech space. Either they haven't been able to study this in school or they don't even know how to begin. What I'm developing is a women in tech movement in Indonesia. We're working with other people as well, other organizations like 
technovation challenge. Uh, so we help out, for example, to coach high school uh, students to be able to build apps on a mobile phone and teach them how to develop products and find product market fit. I'm extremely passionate about this, and I'm really proud that, for example, in Zendit, we over-index in hiring women. About 50% of our leadership are women. I think it, we're really excited about that. And there are a lot of young people, a lot of young women who've joined our company. So I'd love for that to expand. I'd love for people to get inspired. I'm quite proud not to be bragging, but to be the first female co-founder in Indonesia who've been able to drive a company to be a unicorn status, breaking bamboo ceiling, so to speak. But, you know, I say to people all the time, this should be the beginning. I should not be, you know, that person at the top, but I should be opening up the gateway for other women to be even better. So are young women like interested in entering the tech space or even the fintech space in Indonesia? Oh, definitely. I mean, if you look at Zendit alone, actually in my direct team, most of them are extremely, extremely eager, talented, intelligent young women. So I think there's no lacking in young women wanting to be in tech. Now there are so many opportunities in market that they can apply to you know, every tech company and be able to get that opportunity. It's more, I think the issue is, as with in a lot of other markets, how do you retain them in the workspace, right? When they're younger, I think a lot of women want to remain in the workforce, but as they have families, have children, how do we encourage them to stay at work? Sometimes it can get a little bit harder. So, I mean, Zendit has, for example, a lot of policies in order to support them to, to stay with us. We have some programs to be able to help them educate their children. Um, obviously, we've been at home through COVID, so a little bit more difficult. But even through then, we have programs like we'll send families food so that they don't have to cook for their families and can stay in the workforce. I think it'll require a lot of companies to be able to help women stay in the workforce. And I'm extremely, extremely proud that Zenit over-indexes in that part. Right, right. So you mentioned that you guys are a unicorn and that came out last year with your Series C and you've got some blue ribbon investors like Tiger Global and Axel, but we're recording this on May 18th and I know you have an announcement on May 19th. This is not going to come out until May 31st. So when people are listening to this, it'll be in the past, but tell us about the, the Series D funding round that you guys have just put together. We're announcing a raise, 300 million. Kutu and Insight came in this time, another set of blue ribbon investors, if I may borrow your words. For them, it was seeing a company that's best in class, best in market, and who they thought could be category leaders. Interesting. Okay. So what were those conversations like? You already got some of the, the other names I mentioned that are, are really well known. I have backed dozens, hundreds even of fintech companies. So do they understand Indonesia? Just tell us about what the education was like going to these companies. 2015, when I first fundraised, I remember talking to folks in Silicon Valley and someone asked if Indonesia was in Bali. <laughs> and uh, I was like, yes, if that will get me the meeting, then yeah, I'll educate you later. Come 2021, that's a vastly different macro environment and vastly different situation. I think we were one of the first Indonesian companies to YC within the first five Southeast Asian companies into YC. So really opening the door. And now there's dozens of companies every batch from Southeast Asia. So for Kutu and Insight, though, you have some of the smartest investors in the world. So they have done their due diligence long before we actually spoke to them about the round. We built a relationship with them. So they had... These guys come in with decks upon decks of data about why they think you're the category leader. And then it's very fast for them to move. For us, it was 
the way I care about investors is chemistry and, and kind of value add before they come into the round. So from the chemistry side, I really care about integrity. So watching them, how they act and whether they do what they say they're going to do. Uh, and then on the value add side, they were able to give us guidance and introduce us to folks who can say, from where you are now to where you want to go, let's say in a public market situation, here's how you get there. And so best-in-class investors or some best-in-class companies, I think, makes for a good recipe. Sure thing. I mean, I feel like for some of the things you're saying there, I could see how they would be jumping up at that. So then as we wrap, maybe I'd like to hear from each of you as sort of, what are you working on that's exciting? I mean, what's next for Zendit? For us, there are three things that are really exciting that we want to do, especially after this funding round. One part is to continue to regionalize the company. We've had a lot of success in the Philippines. We're really excited about our ability to be able to provide best-in-class products and market. We think we can bring the same to other countries in Southeast Asia and really make that change in payments to be more seamless and simple. The second part is we want to do a lot more lending as well. You know, we've told you the story about the truck drivers. We really want to be able to make more impact to even more merchants, big or small in market, so they can have access to, to some capital to be able to expand on their business as well. The third part is tapping into the more of the SME market. As I said before, I started out having a business on the side selling clothes. There are so many, many more of us like that in Indonesia, Philippines, and Southeast Asia, where they're doing their business from home. They're a one-man show. How can we help them come online? How can we help them find more customers and accept more payments and increase their revenue? Those are the three things we're really excited about. Moses, last word? Yeah, I think about it this way. I'm going to put a different lens on it. You've got a macro environment where big companies are trying to find where's the next engine of growth. We're losing subscribers. We're losing business. What do we do now? I say, come look at Southeast Asia. We've got 650 million people ready to buy things that want to go spend. We've got a rising middle class. We're the fastest GDP growth countries in the world. And most people can see the opportunity. But there's a closing window. I think when you look at history of Silicon Valley and other places, closing window, the companies that exist now or build now will define the next 20, 30 years. And someone like Senate can actually help you get to market. So that's what's exciting for us is we can say, hey, we can open a market for you that was inaccessible before. Come work with us. Okay, well, on that note, we'll have to leave it there. It really is. I can see how it's such an exciting opportunity. Moses, Tessa, it was great to chat with you both. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks so much. I was really struck in this interview at the the opportunity in Southeast Asia, and it really reminds me, and I did touch on it, the, the opportunity in Latin America where you have hundreds of millions of people that are poorly served by the banking system but have access to smartphone technology. And that, I think, is a recipe for fast fintech innovation. And that's what Zendit is really helping to bring about. So I could really see some large fintech businesses being created in this region. And I think they're going to be bringing hundreds of millions of people into the financial system for the first time. Super important work, and I think it's going to make a real difference to these economies. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening, and I'll catch you next time. Bye.